Welcome to the Burn Your Mortgage Podcast, a Canadian real estate podcast that shows you how to pay off your mortgage sooner and live well while doing it. Now, here's your host, Sean Cooper. Welcome to the Burn Your Mortgage Podcast. I'm Sean Cooper, and it's great to be back for another episode. On today's show, I'll be talking to Kyle Prevo. Kyle is the founder of the Canadian Financial Summit, co-author of More Money for Beer and Textbooks, and blogs regularly on Young and Thrifty, a site dedicated to everything finance-related for young adults. Kyle is also a school teacher in Manitoba and has a real passion for financial literacy. In my interview with Kyle, we discuss rural versus urban living, tips for saving up a down payment, and the different approaches to financial literacy across Canada. Without further ado, here's my interview with Kyle Prevo. Hi, Kyle. How are you doing today? Doing well. Thanks for having me, Sean. It's a pleasure to have you. Now, like many other industrialized countries, Canada is a highly urbanized nation. In 2014, over 80% of the population was living in urban areas. But urban living isn't the only option. Talk about the advantages of something that you know about rural living. Yeah, I was I was born in a super small town out here in Manitoba, probably what what most people from uh, Vancouver and Toronto, I, I probably am the stereotype uh, if you ask them to sort of describe the average Manitoban. Grew up and now I teach actually in a small town by choice. Uh, some people go where you sort of forced out there. I, I actually would prefer to live in a small town so much that if I had to pay more uh, in like housing costs, I would still choose to live in a small town just because of my sort of lifestyle choices. But that said, there are some obvious advantages if you, if you like to live rural. Uh, I would argue the, the sort of the best advantage is the, just the freedom of, of living rurally and uh, being able to go for a run, you know, not having to, to sit on a treadmill, knowing your neighbors, and just sort of cliche things like that that we take for granted out here in our small towns, but in larger cities maybe – Lots of folks don't even think of them, but I think there are advantages. All the studies done on sort of people's happiness say that like knowing your neighbors and feeling a sense of community and certainly like a small town isn't the only place where you can get that sense of community, but it obviously helps. And then if you boil it down to just raw numbers and finances, just the difference in housing prices alone, if you look at, you know, how much a mortgage and and interest is going to cost you, the difference in roof over your head is just so substantial that uh, that alone, I think, is, is enough to maybe make some people think about it. If you can just give me an example, Kyle, like in the area that you live in, let's say you were to spend $600,000 on a property there versus Winnipeg, Manitoba, which is the capital of your province, how much further would that $600,000 go in your community versus a bigger city like Winnipeg? I'm just curious. Yeah, so like six hundred thousand dollars is an interesting price point because like that would basically get you a pretty nice, a fairly nice condo outside of the city center in Toronto, right? Sean, is that accurate? 
Yes, that, that's accurate, Kyle. Right. Like within city center, you might get a, a, a pretty raw bones condo, I think. Yeah, so in Winnipeg, 600 grand still gets you a pretty nice place, uh, depending obviously on the neighborhood and, and you know how location location works. But you could probably get in a pretty nice location. You could get a, a pretty nice 15, 1600 square foot new bungalow, landscaped, all the fixings and all that stuff with a little bit of a yard for $600,000. If you were in one of the older neighborhoods, you could have a pretty sprawling house uh, at that point. In my area, there is actually almost no house worth $600,000. <laughs> and that, that might sound crazy to a lot of people, like I'm overselling it, but unless there's farmland attached to it, I, I literally cannot think of a house. Uh, there's a, currently in the community next to me, there's like a brand new 4,000 square foot home with all the fixings on an acreage. And I think it's, it's going for 500, I believe. Wow, so it sounds like you could maybe buy two houses if you're really pushing it in your community there. I, I think you could quite easily, if you were just looking at 30-year bungalows, you could buy five houses. Oh my goodness. So yeah, affordability is definitely, if you enjoy that lifestyle, then affordability is definitely a big bonus of living, rural living. Yeah, it certainly is. Now, uh, with that, you can't just say that in, in sort of a vacuum, because obviously uh, my wife and I, it's very impractical to not have a vehicle some couples can make it work on one vehicle, but a lot of a lot of rural folks tend to have much higher vehicle costs. Obviously, we're driving far larger distances, and it's much harder to walk or bike to work. Although, you know, if you're determined to save money, uh, that that bike can be sort of a valuable tool. But there's just not the public transit options, of course, that you'd have in an urban center. And then also, if you have children and your children are looking at university, that's obviously an increased cost. Things like medical care, anytime you require the need of a specialist where you have to go to an urban center, you also have to factor that added cost in. But I mean, we're, we're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars in difference, especially once that mortgage interest is calculated in, right, Sean? Exactly. So, but I guess it's just important to note, and if you're buying in the GTA, for example, and you're planning to buy in one of those satellite cities like Brantford or uh, one of the more affordable markets like Clarington. Don't just look at the lower price of the property. Don't forget to factor in that extra cost of commuting if you're going to be traveling into work because I, I definitely find that some people forget to factor that in and that's a great point that you raise, Kyle. Yeah, I think, I think just a lot of folks, uh, you know, you, you just look at that final dollar figure. I wrote, I wish I, now that you mentioned, I wish I'd looked this up. I calculated a few years ago sort of my personal cost of commuting, like the average Canadian's cost of commuting. But, you know, in our rural areas, a 20 kilometer commute takes like, you know, 17 minutes or whatever. It's, it, it's usually, there's no stoplights. So it's, it's a pretty easy going experience. Whereas a 20 kilometer commute in the GTA is a little bit of a different ball game from what I understand. Yeah, definitely. Uh, just to, just to make it downtown, uh, it could take you like, uh, for my property here, it could take you like, over half an hour for, for driving. I mean, if I was to drive that distance it, in the traffic of Toronto could take me even an hour long. So certainly there's a big difference between driving in a rural area and an urban area. Yeah, let's, let's go back to advantages and I'm just gonna highlight that one. Sure, sounds good. <laughs> so I was gonna ask you about disadvantages, but we've already covered that. But I just wanted to touch on 
one more area. So do you see rural living becoming a trend with more Canadians telecommuting and self-employed these days? Because I've heard of some people where they're allowed to work from home, so they can't afford a property in a bigger city like Toronto or Vancouver, so they move out to a more affordable market. So do you kind of see that as being a trend going forward, Kyle? And have you actually, do you know anyone who's actually done that themselves? I, I know several people who've done it, Sean. I mean, it's funny because a lot of the people that we chum around with online who write online or do advertising online, who's, who's basically their career is, is creating products or, or communication online, they, they, they often will be on trips all over the globe and, and doing their job. And obviously the same principle can apply to living rurally and taking advantage of the rural lifestyle and sort of the rural cost savings if you want. Now that said, and I think it like, again, for the lifestyle that I like to live, it's, it's a win-win. I get the savings plus I, I get the lifestyle I want. Now the lifestyle I like is not for everybody. Uh, and I think I, I'm comfortable enough to, uh, to understand that. And, and when you talk about disadvantage of rural living, it, it really boils down to uh, a couple things for young people, especially uh, if they're not married, the single scene in rural areas, maybe leave something to be desired. We're, we're not all great catches maybe in the fact that there's just obviously not, not the uh, raw number of single people for you to meet. Yeah, I'm sure um, if you use Tinder and try to find some matches, the choices are pretty limited in a rural area. Well, and, and I have to admit that I, I married my wife. I found my wife quite young uh, in the game. We met in university when I was turning 21. So I've never sort of, I'm, I'm almost embarrassed to admit as a right square in the middle of the millennial generation that I've never downloaded the Tinder app on my phone. <laughs> uh, that said, several of my students, because I teach high school, uh, do say that, uh, yes, that, that Tinder is uh, pretty pretty rough go compared to the GTA or the way they depict the New York single scene on TV. So that would obviously be a disadvantage. Uh, if you're sort of if you found your, your life mates, and you want to raise a family, obviously, that's a little bit of a different ballgame. The other disadvantage is, and this varies uh, massively depending on what rural area you're talking about is simply finding jobs. I have found it a little bit of a misnomer that people they talk about urban and rural as if they're like two planets and they're like urban, lots of jobs, rural, no jobs. And of course, that's just such a gross overgeneralization that it doesn't really help anyone. The area where I live, where there's lots of resource extraction, and, and you mentioned, Sean, like I can work on the internet from anywhere. There's tons of jobs. There's, there's tons of great jobs for almost any skill level. But you're missing, uh, you're missing out, obviously, if, if you are a highly paid professional say an engineer, an architect, there's obviously more gigs for you in an urban setting. So it's, I, I don't agree with the idea that urban always means better jobs or more job uh, selection. I think there's a whole lot of really low paying jobs in urban centers that sort of skew things a little bit. And depending on what, obviously, if you're in a town that used to have a mine and the mine shut down, obviously, there's not a lot of work to go around. But exactly. depending on what part of rural Canada you're talking about, the employment stats can uh, vary quite widely. That's a great point. Now, let's say you've made up your mind, you're going to go out and buy that home. Now, coming up with a down payment is often a struggle for younger folks. And you wrote a great ebook about 
buying a home. So what tips do you have for first time home buyers to reach their saving goal sooner for down payment? Well, you know, sadly, there's no easy answer. There's no, there's no magic answer. It's sort of, I often compare personal finance to fitness and, and it's like one of those things like eat better and move more. Uh, and everyone just keeps trying to reinvent the wheel when it comes to, you know, eating better and moving more. But, but generally speaking, that's what, what a healthy uh, living boils down to. When you're trying to save money, it, it, it basically comes down to earn more, spend less. And then once you do that, obviously, there's, there's little things you can do working with the numbers. You can, you know, look at a high interest savings account or a GIC. You can look at utilizing your TFSA properly. There's some debate about whether the home buyer's plan through an RSP is a good idea. I tend to think for most young Canadians, it's a reality that they're going to probably want to use that. There, there's, there's no real way to get around the math of, especially if you do want to live uh, in an urban center where there is a lot of demand for housing. It just takes a long time to save $100,000 or $200,000. Uh, there's no way around that. And I wish I, wish I had uh, sort of better advice, but the same principles that apply to any personal finance problem, whether that means taking on a side gig, you know, doing what Sean Cooper did and working several jobs while renting out uh, part of your house, any of those extra ways to earn money and get money in the door, uh, you know, living with roommates, what have you, those obviously can be applied to, to setting up that down payment, but the long and short of it is the more you sacrifice, the quicker you're going to get into your new home. But beyond that, there, there isn't a ton that you can do, I don't think. No, that's definitely true, Kyle. And I guess uh, another term the media likes to throw around a lot is the bank of mom and dad. And well, I don't know about your parents, but my parents can't really afford to write me a check for my entire down payment, but perhaps your parents, they have still have your bedroom there and they haven't downsized. You could live at home with them a bit longer and save right. money and perhaps they'll let you pay below market rent or even let you live at home for free. So certainly there are ways to work with your parents. And I would say, come up with a game plan, have it adult discussion and say, I want to save towards a down payment of a property. Perhaps I can live here for an extra year or two and that will help me reach my savings goal sooner. And I think if you have the discussion and kind of set a timeline in place, then perhaps your parents will be more likely to take you seriously. That would be my... Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I, I understand that's, be that's becoming more and more common. And, and like, I think it's, it all just boils down to individual situations, right? That's the, the classic uh, personal finance answer. It depends. And, you know, that's basically a reality for a lot of the world right now. A lot of the world that wants the Western world that if you want to live in a house, it, it may take you till you're 30 or 35 or, or, or even 40 to save up for that down payment. And I mentioned living with roommates in order to sort of save up quicker. Well, sometimes the best roommates are your parents. But sometimes they're not. And I, I guess you just have to be honest with yourself and with them. And like you say, have an adult conversation about it and maybe outline what's in it for your parents, whether that's some monetary contribution or some chores contribution or something like that. Again, I was fortunate to, to meet my wife at a young age. And if, if you look at the statistics on building wealth, getting together with your significant other at a younger age does make things a little bit easier. Oh, definitely. Now, switching gears, financial literacy is something you're quite passionate about, Kyle. Why do you care so much about it and why should Canadians care too? Yeah, I guess when I became a high school teacher, 
Uh, I, I myself was financially illiterate, frankly. I, I went to buy my first home and the modern day Kyle Pree or, the, or Sean Cooper would have uh, shook their head in distaste at <laughs> how little I knew and how I approached buying my first home. So that sort of kickstarted a whole world of things for me. I had no idea what investments were. I, had, I didn't really even understand what an interest rate was. I just knew it was supposed to be low. Basically, the only thing I knew was don't use credit cards if possible. Don't ever carry a balance, which if you're only going to know one thing, that's a pretty good thing to know. But that was basically the extent of it. And then as I got my first teaching job, I sort of started learning more and more. And as I learned more and more, I became aware that those around me had no idea. I remember when I bought my first house, I had some questions. So I I texted a bunch of my buddies and we'd all graduated or were close to graduating. And so this text went out to, I, I don't know what our average IQ is, but it, it, it's an interesting cross section. I have friends who are geologists, friends who are in the trades, friends who work in the social sciences world, et cetera, et cetera. And I realized that all these people who had half a decade in post-secondary institutions or more in the workforce, we, not, none of us had no idea what a prepayment was. None of us really knew the difference between like a one-year fixed and a five-year closed variable. And, and so really what that told me is if my cross-section of friends didn't know, probably a lot of people didn't know. And then I started realizing how little information there actually is out there uh, on financial literacy and, and how little people do know. And I think it's sad because we're not getting the happiness that we work so hard for. I know that even in my uh, immediate and extended families. I look at how hard uh, my family has worked. And, you know, I'm not like we've lived pretty middle class, Canadian middle class, which is a pretty good deal. But we could have we could have done more. My parents could have been even more comfortable in retirement. And I think that's true for a lot of people. But as a teacher, I guess really what I what it boils down to me is there's there's three main reasons why. First one is buyer beware, which I just talked about. I think the government can try to regulate markets all they want, but by far the best regulator is people investing in their own self-interest. And they can't do that if they don't have the education. If there's a massive information imbalance in regards to you know, financial products, then there will forever be people taking advantage of other people's lack of information. And that's, that's obviously sad for a lot of moral and ethical reasons, and I would just like to see people live their best life. Two, uh, we live in a democracy, and I think if you don't actually understand how financial literacy works, uh, it's very difficult to take part in democracy properly. The, the amount of times, and actually in, in, this, in my summit we'll talk about later, I was just talking to Rob Engin about this, the persistent myth that people believe that if they earn a dollar more into the next tax bracket, that their whole income gets taxed at that higher rate. I don't know how that keeps going, but it's just so persistent. And if you believe that, obviously, when politicians are talking about tax rates, you can't really take part in that conversation properly because you don't really understand it. And, and even worse, you don't understand that you don't understand it. So in other words, you're not aware of your own limitations. And I think that we see that often in democracy, uh, whether you're talking about Canada or the USA, and we find it quite difficult to interpret what politicians are saying and boil it down to how it affects our personal situation. So that's another area. And the final one is, is actually just a super selfish uh, free market because a free market works best when, every, when, it, when it's most efficient. And to be most efficient, I want all the other consumers around me demanding 
the best possible value from all the providers, whether it's a service or a, a material good of some kind. So if everyone is demanding the best for the least amount of money, it's gonna, the end result will be much better products for a lower price rather than just taking whatever offers on the table, which unfortunately is what we as Canadians have uh, generally become accustomed to. So those are sort of the, the reasons why I'm so passionate about teaching financial literacy, both in our public school system and outside of it. Now, just quickly wrapping up, I just wanted to ask you, because you've been quite involved in the financial literacy scene, you've even been interviewed on CBC's The National, so you're a bit of a celebrity yourself, but I was just wondering <laughs> if you could tell me a bit about Manitoba's approach to financial literacy compared to the other provinces. Do you think that Manitoba is doing a good job with financial literacy? And what are your thoughts on perhaps Ontario's new approach? And who do you think should be responsible for financial literacy? Do you think it should be the schools? Should it be the parents? Uh, or should it be a combination of both? Yeah, there's, there's a lot of questions. So I'm going to work my way through each of those individually, Sean. First, I just wanted to note that uh, if, if you ever want to not feel like a celebrity and you ever need to stay grounded, I recommend being a high school teacher. Because I thought it was going to be a big deal when I was on the national or the first time I was on the cover of a magazine, which just my, just my name was, my face wasn't, I should point out. And I brought my, this magazine to school and I was like, yes, I'm going to get so much credibility with my students. I'm going to throw this in their face. And uh, my students took one look at it and they were like, well, man, we used to think this magazine was pretty good, but if you can be in it, I guess it can't be that great. Oh, gosh. <laughs> what a buzzkill. <laughs> so that takes your ego right back down to earth in a hurry. So to get to your questions, a uh, uh, sort of just briefly here, uh, in Manitoba, we now have a standard credit option for uh, financial literacy. It's called personal finance. It's, it's offered as a grade 10 credit. But you can take it uh, throughout grade 9, 10, 11, 12. And it is not mandatory, which means you don't have to take it to graduate, but it is a standard credit that can be accepted, that is accepted in any school in the province. And uh, as one of the folks that helped write that curriculum, I, I guess I'm uh, sort of duty bound to say I think it's pretty darn good. <laughs> and uh, I, I no, it, it is. It's a great curriculum. But the thing with the curriculum is we all we all love as teachers and, and educators to sort of think that writing the curriculum is this beautiful work of art, but the curriculum is only as good as the people delivering it. And that's what we're going to find right across the country is that's the gap. Everyone wants to talk about resources and curricula. The, the curriculums that are across each province or even in certain school divisions are, are great. Resources, it's what a joke. I mean, we have how many personal, just listen to Sean Cooper's podcast. There's lots of resources available for anyone that wants to learn about this stuff. What a joke that we need a textbook. Where we're, what we really need is educated teachers uh, who take pride in being business and finance teachers and seek out professional development so that they can deliver this information properly. And that's incredibly difficult. And that's where the huge gap occurs because right now uh, the vast majority of our faculties of education across the country don't accept most business courses as teachables, which means you, ha you, you have very, very, very few teachers that have any business background at all even theoretical business or even economic background. So all these business courses are, are being taught by teachers who have very little background in, in the topic and in the course material. And I think that is the far bigger problem. 
When you look across Canada, there's a lot of provinces that have been working it in. Uh, Quebec has made a, a pretty big uh, commitment. They have, I believe it's a year long course now uh, in, in financial literacy. I haven't seen any results yet on how it's going. British Columbia has worked in a few weeks of it as part of their grade 10 planning course for quite a long time. The Ontario one, and correct me if I'm wrong here, Sean, uh, the, to, what, to what I understand is so starting like seven or eight years ago, Ontario took the standard approach, which was we're going to integrate uh, or layer personal finance topics throughout the entire curriculum, which sounds great, but uh, in my opinion is not a very effective way of going about it. To put it mildly, yes. I'm sort of biting my tongue a little bit. Basically, you're lacking the teacher expertise at any level in any subject area to teach this stuff properly. So I think the only hope is to sort of target a niche group of teachers and have them deliver the material. And recently, I think it was last year, the pilot was done. Ontario is now going to include uh, personal finance within um, the old careers course in Ontario. Yes. Yeah, that's correct. In fact, mandatory. Is that right, Sean? Am I sort of getting this correct? Yes, that, that's correct. And it, it, the pilot went great. And as long as Doug Ford doesn't change anything last minute, then it should be included as part of the careers course. And I think that's great because it is mandatory. Now, it would be nice to have a standalone personal finance course, but at least they were able to work it into the curriculum and everyone is required to take that course. So I definitely right. think it's a win and certainly there needs to still be some work that needs to be done, but I certainly think it will help the future generation of Ontario students be more financially literate. Yeah. Like, so I think I remember seeing it was going to be about six to eight weeks and six to eight weeks is not nothing. I think it'll be enough. If, if you had excellent teachers delivering the information, six to eight weeks would be enough. I feel like you could cover the topics of budgeting, maybe some post-secondary choices, some insurance. Basically, I think you could cover most things except investing in eight weeks if you really sort of put your, your foot on the gas and, and knew what you were all about. To really get into investing and have students start to understand even the bare bones of investing, I think it's going to be hard within that time frame. But then again, that's sort of the cherry on top because I don't think you have very many teachers that understand investing well enough to teach it, to be honest. Exactly. But I think it's certainly a step in the right direction. And with the government actually being more receptive to financial literacy and taking it more seriously and kind of taking a different approach, I'm certainly satisfied with that. Now, yeah. I don't know what the new government, if they're going to be as receptive, but I'm certainly glad that the pilot project was a success. And no, no. Yeah, the new, the new government, they, they'll be all about it because to understand how good a deal Buck of Beer is, you're <laughs> <laughs> the financial literacy course. Real quick, Sean, you asked me about parents, teachers, or both. Yes. I'm at the point now where it's like just just people who know what they're talking about. Maybe it's not parents or teachers. Maybe they're just going to listen to a podcast. I actually give my students uh, extra credit for reading any of the books that I have on my shelf from all the authors across Canada, uh, including Burn Your Mortgage and, and, uh, and or any podcast that they listen to because the idea that they – they are only limited to the resources in my classroom is a pretty sad, sad state of affairs. So if, if parents can, great. But it's one of these things of if you look at <clears throat> the average parents across Canada, they, they just quite simply don't have the subject area knowledge. And it's not their fault. They just weren't taught it in school. And they're oftentimes embarrassed to admit I was embarrassed when I didn't know what I was doing with my mortgage. And I can only imagine that'd be even more so if my child were asking me questions about it. 
So if you, I think it's an, it's an unbelievable advantage if your parents are very financially literate and can pass the information along, by all means, great. But I think it's, it's, it's like anything else. I mean, we consider math important, so we make sure that schools teach it, so that if they have parents that for some reason aren't adept at math, the child still gets taught math. Well, it's the same thing with, you know, how a tax system works. If parents don't really understand it, I think it's pretty it's pretty important that uh, all Canadians understand how their tax system works. So that should be taught in schools. Certainly so that they actually understand what a marginal tax rate means. Right. And, and what buck of beer does for you. <laughs> and let's, uh, <laughs> I know that's one of Sean's favorite examples. That's why I pick it out of here. <laughs> well, let's uh, end it on that high note, Kyle. It's been <laughs> great having you on the show. Before I let you go, is there anything of interest that you're working on that you'd like to share with our listeners? Yeah, we got the Canadian Financial Summit coming up here in September. So check out the Canadian Financial Summit. We bring together 25 plus, I think we're up to 28 now of Canada's leading sort of financial experts, plus me. I don't include myself in that group. <laughs> Uh, including the brilliant uh, mortgage master host of this podcast here. Sean is bringing his, his unique brand of wisdom over to the financial summit. So you can hear us talk about the current mortgage environment and just uh, sort of mortgages in general. And you might also recognize names like Creep Banerjee, Rob Carrick, Ellen Roseman, uh, Jax on Tax, veteran Evelyn, Evelyn Jax. Uh, we got a broad range of folks discussing everything from how to retire at 30 to how to sort of draw down those savings if you're 55 or 60 or 65, uh, or even a guy like John Chevro who's talking about a victory lap retirement and what that all entails. So check out the Canadian Financial Summit. You can obviously just Google it, uh, or you can find it through Sean's site. Yes, and I watched the Canadian Financial Summit last year, and the talks were very informative, and they were interesting as well, because I know personal finance can be a bit of a dry topic. I found it quite engrossing, and I even learned some things myself, so definitely be sure to check it out. And I'd just like to say, Kyle, thanks so much for being on the podcast. It was wonderful to have you on the show. All right. Thanks for having me, Sean. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Burn Your Mortgage podcast. Besides being a podcast host and money coach, I'm also a licensed mortgage broker. If you or anyone you know, family, friends, coworkers, or neighbors could ever use any unbiased mortgage advice or a second opinion, feel free to reach out. You can reach me by email at seancooperwriter at gmail.com or you can call or text me at 647-867-3711. Also, be sure to head on over to www.seancooperwriter.com and sign up for my free weekly newsletter. As a small token of my appreciation, you'll be able to download my ultimate mortgage checklist on choosing the perfect mortgage. You can also sign up for a free one-on-one 15-minute money coaching consultation with yours truly. I look forward to hearing from you and helping you burn your mortgage sooner too. Once again, thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Burn Your Mortgage Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and leave a rating. Until next time, happy mortgage burning.